my favorite song right before we look at God's Word. Um, so that, that was awesome. Thank you. Um, like Larry said, my name is Derek Fekas. Uh, I, my family is not here today, unfortunately, but I do have a family. Um, my wife and I have been married seven years. Um, and then we have three kids, two boys and a girl. Uh, Ezra and Emerson are four and a half and almost three. And then we have a little girl, Eliza, who's four, four and a half months. Um, we live up on Camino Island in the Camino Stanwood, Stanwood Camino community. Uh, I am uh, a pastor at Communion Church in Mount Vernon. I've been a pastor there for a couple years, which is a three-strand church. Some of you, you may have heard um, your pastors talk about the three-strand network, um, a network you guys are a part of. So Communion Church is another three-strand church in Mount Vernon, and then I've been planting a church in the Stanwood Camino area out of Communion um, over the last few years. And we are all, so that, the name of our church plant uh, is Roots Church, and we are also a part of the three-strand network. Um, so I want to share, share a little bit, before we get into the message, a little bit about our journey church planting, just to give you an idea of, of who I am and, and who we are as a church, and then that will lead into today's message. Um, I had never envisioned myself pastoring a church, let alone planting a church. That thought had never crossed my mind. Um, we had been living in Texas. I was doing music and youth at a, a small church down there. Um, and as, as we began feeling God calling us to come back up here to Washington, uh, I grew up in the, the Stanwood area. That's, that's home to me. But as God began calling us back up here, it, even then it took me a long time to warm to the idea of planting a church. Um, but over a couple-year process, God did a lot of work in me. God turned my some of my desires around 180 degrees and prepared me for what we've been doing these last couple years. So a couple of those things where I had previously dreaded the thought of teaching and preaching, um, I had done it a couple times and it wasn't something I ever wanted to do regularly. Um, God began to develop in me a, a passion for doing this and a, a real desire to do this. And I found myself staying up late at night thinking of, you know, going over Bible passages and just thinking of how I would prepare those and preach those passages. Um, I came into this, that position in Texas uh, very clearly communicating to the leadership at the church that I was very content doing music and youth, uh, didn't want to do any other forms of leadership, was, had no interest or desire to be a pastor. Um, over my time there, God began to change that in me and give me some, some convictions about biblical church leadership and a desire to see that lived out. But more significant than those things, what God did mostly in me um, was help clarify what the gospel is. Uh, what exactly the message of Christianity that sets it apart from every other religion, every other philosophy is. And and to, to see it as distinct from either morality or just religion. And as God began to clarify this in my mind, I began to see that there were a lot of other messages being substituted for and being claimed as the gospel in the church. Um, I began to see that a lot of people were being led to believe that Christianity is merely about being a good person or just going to church doing religious acts of piety. And... Seeing all of this broke my heart and began to light a fire in me and want to, want to do something about this. 
Uh, during this time, as God was working in me and, and, and convicting me of things, I came back up here to Stanwood to my 10-year high school reunion, and I just felt my heart begin to be pulled to this community, my, my home where I had grown up. Um, I, I knew the community well. I had worked at a couple different churches there. I knew the church scene pretty well. Um, and and, and my, so my passion for the gospel and to see the gospel clearly communicated began to have a, a specific location, and I began to feel pulled to this place. And Now, it's not that the gospel is completely absent from that community, um, of course, but it was readily obvious that there was uh, some confusion over what the gospel was. Um, there was, and, and still is, a need for the clear communication of the gospel, what it is, how it relates to all of life, and, and for a church community that is, you know, being united around and living out, living their lives around the gospel. So we moved up here about four years ago to begin this process of planning a church. Um, we began attending Communion Church in Mount Vernon. I began going through an assessment process with the Three Strand Network for church planning. I came on eventually as a, a lay pastor at Communion, and then about a year ago came on full-time as a staff pastor. Um, and then Roots, our church plant, we began meeting originally in our home a few years ago, gathering a group together, beginning to cast the vision. And then we just uh, began public services in April this year. So we've just been meeting for about four months. Uh, we meet Sunday evenings right now at a local Methodist church. Um, and in, in many ways, we've launched. We're, we look like a church. We, we're doing worship services Sunday evenings there. But our official launch date is in a couple weeks on September 10th. So we're getting ready for that. At that point, we'll separate from communion, and uh, I will be full-time uh, supported by Roots. Uh, one of the things that you learn pretty quickly when you're planting a church, and I think just pastoring a church too, is that there are always sufficient needs and, and struggles to keep you trusting in God. Uh, in God's wisdom, he never lets you get to the point where you, where you can say, oh, I got this down, got this figured out. I don't need to trust in God anymore. Or if you get there, he doesn't let you stay there very long. Some, something always comes up. And, and this is a really good thing. Um, my desire is to see God work and to know clearly, clearly that it's God who is working and not me or anything else. I want to see the power of God through the gospel change lives and, and affect a community and know that and have everyone see that it's God who is doing it and have all the glory to go to him. So that's kind of what I want to talk about today. We're going to uh, use a passage from 1 Corinthians to look into to that topic. So we'll be in 1 Corinthians 1. And, um, yeah, so if you want to turn there. So we're going to be looking at what the gospel is and what it means to be gospel-centered. Uh, this term gospel-centered is one of our uh, core values as a church, and it's also a Christian buzzword if there ever was one. You've probably came across this, this phrase many times. And anytime something becomes a buzzword like this, it it gets overused, and it, then it becomes used in, you know, without, in lots of cases, without any real meaning. It just gets thrown in to, to you know, to get attention. And people use it to refer to all sorts of things. It's kind of like the Sunday school answer of Jesus to every question. It's a good answer, but at some point, when you just keep saying it, it doesn't mean much anymore. So what is the gospel-centered movement? The gospel-centered movement is a push to keep Jesus' life, death, and resurrection as the central aspect of Christianity. 
the thing that helps explain everything else about Christianity. Or to put it another way, it's a conviction that Christianity is a God-centered religion rather than a man-centered religion. That the world, and you and I, exist for God and his glory first and foremost. And that seeing who he is and what he's done for us is our starting point and is the point we can never get away from in understanding who we are and how we are to live this life. But explaining what the gospel-centered movement is doesn't explain why it exists. Why is, there a, there, why is there this need for this emphasis on who God is and what he's done for us? Well, the movement has come, come about as a response to what are seen as many man-centered versions of Christianity. Man-centered versions of Christianity. And I see three primary categories of man-centered Christianity today. And so I want to go through these, but the problem with these is not that they're saying something unbiblical. It's that they're taking one of the implications or one of the, the results of the gospel and substituting it for the gospel. So what are these categories? First is morality. Morality says, God's main concern is that you live morally upright lives. Do these things, don't do these things, and then God will have no choice but to love you and give you salvation. Now, right off the bat, we need to state that morality is important. Living lives of increasing godliness is a constant theme throughout the scriptures, is something very central to Christianity. And so the problem isn't the importance of morals. The problem is what roles, role do, do morals play in the Christian life? Can Christianity be boiled down to simply living good lives? No. Because it's possible to be passionate about living a good life, and not care anything about God. It's possible to be outwardly, to live outwardly moral lives and not have any love for God in our hearts. Of course, it's possible to do these things and also love God too, but that just means that we need to be aware of reducing Christianity down to be a good moral citizen, live a good life. There's in that, which we'll get into. Second category of man-centered Christianity is social justice. So whereas morality focuses on personal goodness, social justice focuses on goodness in the broader society. Helping the poor, eliminating injustice and evils, making sure everyone has a fair chance in life. And just like morality, these are important things that we as Christians should care about, but they're not the sum total of the Christian message. And we can give all of our lives and all of our possessions to helping the poor, and we can do great good in the world and still be devoid of any love for God. Jesus was once asked what the most important commandment was, as many of you are familiar with, and he responded, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he added a second, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, we can't hear him on the second one and, and have off the hook for Do I need to do something with this? Okay. On the other hand, as John says in his first letter, we, we can't claim to love God and hate people either. You know, we can't go that route. No, for the Christian, both vertical love for God and horizontal love for people are, are important. And then thirdly, the third centered category of man-centered Christianity is what I'll call victorious Christian living. This is a thinking that says, what God cares about most is my happiness and health. If you have problems or sicknesses, 
pains, difficult situations, God exists merely to help you get out of those, help you fix your problems. Now again, there's a lot of truth in this. God does care about our happiness, but not over and above our obedience and our faithfulness. God does want to heal all of our diseases and fix all our problems, but he's never promised to do this in this life. In fact, he clearly said the exact opposite. He said, in this world, you will have trouble. Uh, Many of his disciples, many of the Christian saints throughout history experienced lots of persecution. Many of them were killed for their faith, and this wasn't because they simply didn't have enough faith that God would heal them. God does heal some of our diseases. God does fix some of our problems and eliminate some of our difficulties in this life. But others he allows to continue um, to teach us to trust him, teach us to seek him and cling to him above all else. And so the problem with victorious Christian living thinking is that it often equates God's goodness with how easy he makes my life. It prioritizes my health and happiness over God's glory. And these three man-centered versions of Christianity are everywhere. You see them in books, conferences, Christian music, sermons, podcasts, whole churches. But they're not just out there, they're also in our hearts. They are popular because the human heart is tempted to lift up self and downplay God. Our hearts are continually tempted to turn Christianity into a religion where God, ex- God exists, you know, where he is all about us and our needs, rather than where we are called to be all about him and his glory and his will. So what is the gospel? If it's not these things, what is the gospel? How does it relate to all of this? And what does it mean to be gospel-centered? This is what we're going to look at. We're going to take uh, as our text, 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 31. It's a longer section of scripture. We're just going to read it all together up front here and uh, then, then work through it. So here's what Paul says, 1 Corinthians 1, starting in verse 18. It says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. All right, 
So Paul begins by referring to the gospel, uh, but with the phrase, the word of the cross. Uh, Now, the Greek word translated gospel in our Bibles uh, means good news. It was a word that was used to refer to the announcement of victory in war. So imagine a war-ravaged army in a war-torn nation uh, receiving news that the war that they had been fighting, that um, that had taken all that they had, was over and they had been victorious. They no longer had to live in fear. Um, Their lives and their country were saved. This was news of great joy. And so the biblical authors pick up this term and they use it to refer to the coming of Jesus and to all that he did. And specifically, as they begin to reflect on um, Jesus' life and his death and resurrection, they begin to see how these things fulfilled all of the expectations and promises of the scriptures. And, and they realized that Jesus was the, the promised one. Jesus was the one who had, who had been expected, who was fulfilling all of these things. Uh, one of the key messages of Scripture, both Old and New Testaments, is that salvation is from the Lord. Salvation is from the Lord. And we see how this works. We see how salvation is from the Lord in the cross of Christ. God saves undeserving sinners through Jesus' sacrificial death in our place, for our sins. Uh, J.I. Packer, he uh, defines the gospel similarly. He's, he says, God saves sinners. Three words, God saves sinners. So God, the creator of the world, the one to whom everyone owes their existence. Sinners, all of us, all humanity, who stand guilty before God and deserving of his wrath, and then saves. So God in his mercy does all the work necessary to rescue undeserving sinners and reconcile us to himself and give us new and eternal life. God saves sinners. And so this is, in a nutshell, what Paul is getting at when he says the word of the cross, the message, the proclamation of the cross, what Jesus did on the cross. And Paul says that this word, this message, is the power and wisdom of God. Now, when we think about God's power, we, we tend to think about his power in things like creating the world or in healing people or in performing miracles. And these, these all show an aspect of God's power. But Paul says that the, the gospel message is just as much the power of God, if not more so. So what does this mean? How does the message of a man dying on a cross display God's power and wisdom? Well, to understand the power of something, we have to understand the purpose of something. I imagine if you took um, a cell phone to somebody in, living in the first century and said, this is a really powerful little, little thing here, they would have a hard time believing you. Uh, they would think it would be quite a bit pointless. But we all think cell phones are pretty powerful because we know what they exist for and we, we depend on them quite a bit. Similarly, to many... The message of the cross seems pointless and weak. Uh, To our natural understanding, this is how it seems. But when we understand what it's doing, when we understand God's purposes for the cross, for the gospel, to reconcile humanity to himself, we see that it accomplishes God's purposes perfectly. And we begin to see its power and wisdom. But not only does it accomplish God's purposes perfectly, it also meets our greatest need. Our greatest need is not to have more money, 
more vacations, easier relationships, more obedient kids, as great as, great as those things would be. No, our greatest need is to, you know, our greatest need is to be in a right relationship with God, to be known and loved by him, and to recenter our lives around him and his glory. And only if we understand that this is our greatest need will we see the cross to be what it is. Will we see God's wisdom and power in Jesus, in the cross? And what Paul says here is that our view of the cross should set us apart from everyone else in the world. In the passage, Paul splits humanity into two groups of people, those who are being saved and those who are perishing. That's the distinction he makes. And he says that the dividing line between these two groups is how they view the cross. So one group views the cross as folly. Uh, Literally, the Greek word would be better translated moronic. The message of the cross, moronic. And the other group views it as the very power and wisdom of God. These are two vastly different views of what happened at the cross. And Paul is writing this letter... Because the Christians in the town of Corinth, whose this letter is written to, were tempted to view the cross as the rest of the world. Irrelevant, impractical, weak, in a little need of some PR help. So a little background here. In, in Corinth at this time, there were these traveling, debating philosophers. Think Socrates and Aristotle. And these philosophers were highly respected. They had cultural prestige. You know, if this was today, it would be their messages that were reposted and liked on social media. It'd be their podcasts that were at the top of all the charts. And the Corinthian Christians wanted a belief system, wanted a a philosophy or ideology that was equally respected in their society. But Paul says, this is not how the gospel works. Look again at verses 20 through 21. He says, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater or philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through its own wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach, the gospel, to save those who believe. In God's wisdom, salvation comes through a message that in the eyes of the world is weak. Simple, odd, even offensive. And this is by design. And like the Corinthians, we sometimes don't really like this. We want a gospel that is more popular, more appealing, more in line with cultural wisdom. We think the effectiveness of the gospel depends on the charisma of our pastor or our kids' programs that gives Disneyland a run for its money or the hipness of our music, or our clothes. We set ourselves up as PR agents of the gospel, and we doctor it up a little bit, hoping that it'll be more effective and more powerful. And we do this because we think, perhaps subconsciously, that the gospel is either irrelevant or weak. Irrelevant or weak. Let's look at these two assumptions a little bit. First, There's a claim that the gospel message is irrelevant. What does the fact of history have to do with helping me live my life? We want a self-help book. We want a 10-step program. We want three steps to a better marriage. We want to learn how to live every day as a Friday. 
Wouldn't that be great? Just tell me what to do. How can I make my life better? Well, self-help is exactly what it claims, us helping ourselves. But the message of the gospel is, the central message of the gospel is that we have a problem we can't fix. And if we could fix it, Jesus wouldn't have had to come and die. But the only one who could pull us out of despair and darkness and selfishness and separation from God did just that. Jesus' death on the cross is relevant because it meets a real need. It meets our greatest need. A second claim is that the gospel message is weak. Paul says in verse 22 that Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. So some of us are like the, the Jews in Paul's day. The Jews wanted God, or some of the Jews wanted God to, to perform a mighty sign to prove to the whole world that, world that they were right. They want to be justified. They want to be vindicated. They wanted Jesus to be this political savior who would rescue them from their enemies and give them protection and prestige and power. But, Jesus, but the Jesus they got didn't do it for them. And he doesn't do it for us either. He doesn't wipe out all of our critics. He doesn't prove once for all that we are right and they, whoever they are, are wrong. He doesn't put Christians in all the powerful positions of Washington and Hollywood and our workplaces. And yet the gospel still goes forward with power just as God intended it to. Some of us are like the Greeks in Paul's day. As we saw already, they love to sit around and listen to these philosophers theorize about the meaning of life, and, and they love to pit these different philosophers against, against one another and pride themselves on, uh, on aligning with whichever one they thought was most charismatic or most convincing. And so when some Greeks converted to Christianity, they kept doing the same thing. Earlier in, the, in chapter 1 in 1 Corinthians, you see them saying things like, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, I follow Peter. What they were doing is taking pride in which celebrity preacher they listened to. Because they wanted a gospel that was convincing and respectable and able to compete on the world stage. But the message of Jesus' death on the cross doesn't sit among the elite and respected thought systems of the world. Then or now. There's not a lot of places you can go where you tell someone you follow Jesus and here's what you believe in this man who died on the cross, and everyone wants to gather around you and listen to you and, and just thinks you're so interesting and wants to know more about it. Some places, but, but not a lot. And again, this is intentional. But why? Why would God do this? Why would God intentionally choose to save a people in a way that seems foolish and weak to our natural understanding? And the answer that Paul gives is so that God gets all the credit. Paul says the reason God saves people in the way that he does is, quote, so that no human being might boast in his presence. The gospel leaves no room for human boasting. You don't gain salvation by being smart, by having common sense, by doing lots of good, by being re uh, devoted to religion. You can't credit anything in yourself. Salvation is gained simply by seeing who God is and what he's done in Jesus and responding in humble repentance and faith. The power and the sufficiency are of God. They're not of us. 
Our part is to put our full hope and trust in the power and sufficiency that God has provided. Okay. There still remains one complaint against the gospel that we haven't covered. Is this thing even practical? Because it's possible to believe that the gospel is sufficient for our initial salvation to get us into heaven, and yet still doubt whether it has any practical effects on our life. Why not believe in the gospel for salvation, but then turn to things like self-help to help us get through everyday living? Well, as we learn throughout Scripture, God isn't merely concerned with saving us for eternity. He's just as much concerned with helping us live right now for more like Jesus, for his glory, as we were created to be. So if the gospel is the wisdom and power of God, then surely it not only affects our position before God, saved or damned, surely it's meant to affect our, our, our lives, our actual lives in the here and now. Or to put this another way, If the purpose of the gospel is to cause us to boast in Christ, surely this boasting is not just a one-time event. Surely this is an ongoing reliance on and worship and enjoyment of God in everything we do. So I want to answer this complaint about the gospel not being practical by looking at three ways that living with the gospel at the center, gospel-centered living, actually changes how we live. First, the gospel keeps us humble in good times. The gospel tells us how far God had to go to atone for our sin. It took nothing less than the death of our creator God in our place to rescue us from ourselves, from our sin, from the punishment we deserve, and to bring us into a right relationship with God. And so when life brings us comforts and pleasures and joys and successes, and we're tempted to put, to become proud and self-sufficient and think that we've got this down, we remember that no amount of good things in this life, no matter how great our life has become, no amount of this can make us right with God, can fix our greatest need. A great life with all the pleasures can never substitute for a life lived with God. The gift of Christ is still sweeter and more to be desired. As Paul says elsewhere, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Nothing in life is so good as to diminish the joy and the hope of the cross. And on the other hand, nothing or everything in life is worth losing if the reward is Christ. Secondly, the gospel keeps us hopeful in hard times. So not only does the gospel remind us how far God had to go to atone for our sin, it also tells us how far God was willing to go to atone for our sin. The gospel gives us this tangible, historical proof of the extent God went to demonstrate his love for us. And and not just a happy-feeling type of love, but a a real, proved, willing-to-sacrifice type of love. Normally, we respond to hard times by becoming somewhat tunnel-visioned. We focused on the problem or the suffering right in front of us and how we can get out of it the quickest. 
And this is understandable, but it's not helpful, and it doesn't really give us any hope. Remembering the gospel, God saves sinners, helps us to step back from whatever it is right in front of us and get a fuller perspective. God is for us. He's pursued us and drew him to himself, and we are at peace with him and dearly loved by him. These truths are the reality that we need to, to live with hope and endurance in suffering. Man-centered versions of Christianity can't give us this hope in suffering. So morality tends, us to, tends to cause us to view suffering as either as tied to our efforts and goodness. So either we think we've been good enough and we view all our suffering as unjust and we demand God fix it and get us out of it right now, or we feel despairing because we realize that we do have some sin that needs addressing and we feel the weight and responsibility not only of our sin now, but of our suffering, which we think we have caused. Victorious Christian living versions of Christianity are similar, but instead of connecting suffering to our good works or our efforts, they tend to connect it to a lack of faith, which again has the effect of making us feel guilty or somehow responsible when suffering continues. We do our part and demand God fixes it. And what happens when, when we do this, when we believe that all suffering can be eliminated by our efforts or by our faith or prayer or fasting, is that we keep our focus on the suffering. How can we get out of this the quickest? That's my number one priority. And we don't actually trust God and his goodness and his presence in the midst of the suffering. We seek God as a means to an end and not as an end in himself. Social justice versions of Christianity focus so much on the horizontal realm and put all of their hope in human abilities to fix world problems that when our best efforts aren't working and they're still suffering, there's not a lot of hope left. The gospel is first seen as irrelevant to the real suffering in the world, and then when the bottom falls out on human solutions, there's nothing left to hold on to. But a confident trust in the gospel gives us the very hope and endurance and comfort we need for the hard times of life. God is still with us, and he has promised to work all things together for our good. And thirdly, the third practical effect of the gospel is that it puts our focus on God's glory above all else. If salvation is accomplished through God's work for us, what he has done for us, and we can credit nothing in ourselves, then all that is left to do is to live a life in response of, of worship, love, and obedience. We have all the motivation we need to love, obey, and worship God because he first loved us. We no longer need to try to stay on God's good side or to secure our own happiness and health in life, or to fix all of the world's problems, though these things have a place. But what we ultimately live our lives for is the pleasure and glory of God. Which, of course, and it needs to be said, will then lead to changed lives and addressing the evils in the world and diligent prayer and sacrifice. But all of this will be done for him and not to feel better about ourselves. Because in Jesus... We have all of the resources we need to feel good about ourselves. 
that the king of the universe, our creator, has loved us to the utmost. And this brings us back to where we started. Man-centered versus God-centered versions of Christianity. The push to be more man-centered usually comes from a belief that God's ways of working, namely through the gospel, are not very practical. They need a little help. They need a little assistance. You know, sometimes we might begin by trusting God's ways, but then when things don't happen or don't happen as fast as we'd like, we, we turn to other methods. We turn to other messages. We turn to other programs. But the gospel is powerful and effective, and it is God's means of not just saving us, but, as, but of equipping us for the life that he's called us to live. Hear what Paul says just after the passage we read at the beginning of chapter 2. He says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with a lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Today, he might say, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with pyrotechnics, with manipulative emotional appeals, or the slickest wardrobe. Not that there's anything wrong with having good production and music and dressing nice, but because the gospel doesn't depend on these things for its power. And when we think that it does, and we doctor it up like this, we miss the opportunity to see clearly that it's God who is working and not our top-notch production. This is is my hope for, for our churches. It's my hope for every church. I want to see, and I want all of us to see, the power and wisdom of God at work through the gospel. I want to see people change through God's word and to know that it's God doing it and not me or anyone else. Not that he doesn't use us, but it's him doing the real change. I want to see churches that trust the gospel and the whole testimony of scripture to be sufficient for what God wants to do among us. And when things aren't going exactly as we want or moving along as fast as we'd like, we, we stay true and we continue patiently in God's word, in prayer, in fellowship with, with one another, in all of these means that he has given us. Now, when Paul says he decided to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified, He doesn't mean that there's nothing else to being a Christian than this message. Uh, He goes on to say that there's a hidden wisdom of God for those who are mature, or as he says elsewhere, the full counsel of God. Here's what he's saying, and and here's what I'll I'll leave you with. The gospel, the, the message of God saving undeserving sinners, this is not everything there is about being a Christian, but everything that it means to be a Christian is in some way connected to this message. Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection are the central aspects of God's purposes for humanity. And everything else, our daily living for him, our talking to others about him, our fighting sin, our dealing with suffering, our going to church and praying and doing devotions, all of this is connected to this and must stay connected to this. Here's how... um, Pastor and author Tim Challies puts it. He says, The gospel centered Christian is simply the Christian who is always looking to the gospel as the power for change, who is holding up the gospel as his reference point. No matter the situation, he's looking to the gospel and asking, 
How does the gospel apply to this? Or to put it another way, the gospel-centered Christian is one who is continually going back to the cross, going back to Jesus, to find his source of identity and worth and comfort and hope. So continue to grow, mature in the faith, continue to dig deeper, continue to love one another, continue to gather together, continue to fight and struggle against sin and, and mature. But in all of this, keep coming back to the cross. Keep gazing at what God has done for you in Jesus.